I just wanted to pass that on to you. I knew you'd want to rejoice with me as I rejoice in that. I don't know about you, but I like uh, this room. Kind of casual and informal. Makes us feel a little bit more uh, uh, closer together, I think. A little bit of an informal casualness about it. And I like that. I like the chairs, too, don't you? I think it's a little easier on you. Matter of fact, I think the casualness of our atmosphere might demand that... Uh, you guys mind if I take my coat off and be a little more relaxed with you? Is that all right? Good? Good. You like my shirt, fellas? Can't get, can't get this one off. Well, I'm going to preach today like this. Okay, take your Bible if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 14 while I try to get my shirt off. Yeah, Karen will have to fix that one. In 1984, Mary Lou Retton captured the heart of America. 1984, Mary Lou Retton showed herself to be the finest women, woman gymnast in the world. She scored a perfect 10 in the vault and also in the floor exercise. She's the first woman ever from the United States to be the finest gymnast in the world. Mary Lou Retton, after her success at the Summer Olympics here in L.A., was asked the question, Mary Lou, why are you successful? What is it that produced this tremendous success, this tremendous victory? Mary Lou said it was no accident. I want you to listen to her words. She said, the key to my success and my victory, the key to the winning of the gold medal to become the finest woman gymnast in the world, was my commitment to training and exercise, and secondly, because I went out and acquired the finest coach in the world, Bella Caroli, the Romanian coach who defected. Mary Lou Retton said the key to her success is built in two words. Number one, commitment, and number two, coaching. Mike Scott, who's virtually assured of the Cy Young Award in the National League, you saw him perhaps in the playoff series pitching for Houston, almost washed up, waved by his team and traded to Houston. Mike Scott in the process met a fellow by the name of Roger Craig, who now coaches for the San Francisco Giants. Roger Craig taught Mike Scott to throw a forkball. And because of Roger Craig's coaching and because of Mike Scott's commitment to practice and over and over again throw that pitch until he mastered it, guaranteed him the success that he enjoys today. And gentlemen, I want to say to you that the key in the Christian life is a lot like that of those athletes. Because athletes and Christians are a lot alike. Because the key to success as a Christian is also commitment and coaching. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have got to be committed to that end. And if you want to be a success and realize your fullest potential, you've got to have a coach. You've got to have someone to show you the ins and outs and the little subtleties that you might master the art of Christian living. So I want to talk to you today about becoming a disciple, realizing your fullest potential as a Christian. And I want to present to you the fact that in order to do that, you need commitment and you need coaching. A disciple, New Testament word is methetes. 
classical Greek defines methetes as this. A person was a methetes or a disciple when he bound himself or committed himself by contract to the teacher of some practice or religion. Some, and he bound himself to that person for the purpose of acquiring their theoretical or practical knowledge. Bound as by a contract, commitment, discipleship. If I am a disciple, it necessarily implies that I have a personal and devoted commitment to someone else who can train me up in the art or the religion to which I am pursuing. That's the New Testament concept of methetes, discipleship. I want you to look in Luke chapter 14 with me. I want to show you the tremendous degree of commitment that is required for a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you would be a disciple, you must be committed to Him. Notice what it says in chapter 14 of the book of Luke, beginning to read with verse 25. Now great multitudes were going along with Him, going along with Jesus, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... The found, and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. Verse 33, So therefore... No one of you can be my disciple who who does not give up all his own possessions. Verse 25 points out that Jesus is being followed by a great multitude. And it's verse 25 that gives us the key to understanding the rest of what Jesus is going to say. Prior to this, he has dealt with the Pharisees. But now he is traveling toward Jerusalem. And this great multitude is following Him. And and it's as if Jesus were to look out and to see all of these who would follow Him. All of these who would be His disciples. And He says, now a great multitude were going along with Him. And He turned and said to them, Jesus had a great crowd following Him. But He knew and understood by the greatness of this crowd, by the large number who would follow Him, that there was a misunderstanding between Them and Him. You see, they thought discipleship required a lot less than it really did. They thought that they could follow Him and be a part of His community and His fellowship and not really pay the price that He knew must be paid. So in Luke chapter 14, He turns to this tremendous group of people who would be His disciples. And He said, I want to clarify for you what true discipleship demands. You see, undoubtedly, some of them were following Him because they were infatuated with 
the uniqueness of his teaching and the interesting comments that would come out of his mouth. The teaching that was as the authority of the scribes or greater than the authority of the scribes. Undoubtedly, some of those in this crowd were kind of curious as to the different things that he would say and do. And they were kind of caught up in this man's character and the, the noble cause. And they, 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 they were following out of curiosity and interest, but they really weren't committed to the degree that Jesus knew they must be committed to be a true disciple. And gentlemen, I want to say to you that I would suggest that in a room this large, there are a number of you who follow Jesus like those multitudes did with a perverted concept of what true fellowship and true discipleship really is. It's more than just coming to chapels. It's more than just coming to a Bible school. It's more than just reading the Bible regularly every morning or every other day. It's more than going to church on a regular basis. It's more than finding a curious uh, novelty about His teaching. It's more than the sense of well-being and sense of community that you feel in a group like this in common ground with other believers. True discipleship is more than all of that. And Jesus wants to cue this crowd, and I want to cue you this morning, that true discipleship demands the utmost in commitment. It's not enough to be curiously interested or uniquely motivated. You must be a committed man to Jesus Christ. Let's look at the quality of the commitment, the nature of it. Three words I want you to notice, or three words that I'll point out in the process of traveling through these verses. Notice what he says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what did Jesus mean when he says he must hate these particular relatives and even himself? You must understand the word hate as a relative term. Hate by comparison. I must hate father, mother, sister, brother, children, and even my own life by comparison with my love for Jesus Christ. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, again, teaching these same principles, uses a little different choice of words, and it helps clear up for us what he meant by hate. Hate's a strong word. doesn't kind of jive or make sense or harmonize with, with what we know of the rest of the Scriptures, because we're to honor mom and dad and we're to treat others with love and respect, and yet here we see the word hate. But what Jesus was saying is communicated clearly in chapter, 30, or chapter 10, verses 37 through 39 of Matthew. Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me for he who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He who loves them more than me. Gentlemen, the kind of commitment necessary to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is the kind of commitment which says my affection for him is so much more than my affection and my commitment to others that that comparison would be like calling my feelings for them hate and my feelings for Him love. That far apart, that much distance. If you're going to be a true disciple, you must love Him more than anything else. 
Your affection for Him must be so far above your affection for others and for yourself that it could be defined as literally hate as the way you would refer to others by comparison of your love for Him. The word I want you to see is no person should inhibit your commitment to Him. No person. Secondly, notice what it says in verse... uh, Let's go back to Luke chapter 14 and notice what it says in verse 27. Commitment not only involves no great affection above that for Christ for others, but verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Two key words here. First of all is the word no pleasure or pursuit. Verse 27, who does not carry his cross. To carry a cross literally meant that you were picking up. You you know that Jesus was supposed to carry his cross. And if it weren't for someone interceding, a Ethiopian, a black man carrying his cross for him, Simon, Jesus would have carried his own cross. And that was the custom of that day. A person who was going to be crucified carried his own cross. It was a one-way trip, guys. He didn't come back. He was going one way. There was nothing left for him except to die in pain. By bearing the cross, the Scriptures literally mean you are denying yourself. You are crucifying yourself to the things of God. You are giving up the things of the world. You are denying your pursuits and your pleasures, your own personal desires and appetites. You're bearing the cross. You're going to the place where on the cross you would be crucified. No life left of your own. Only life to be lived for Him. Galatians chapter 6. Would you turn there with me, please? Talks about the kind of things that ought to be crucified. We can even begin with chapter 5 and verse 24. Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is it? That carrying the cross demands, it demands a crucifixion of oneself. A dying of oneself. A denying of your own personal pleasures and desires and pursuits. The desires of the world. The desires of the things of the flesh. Notice Paul said, the passions and the desires. Those are the things that have been crucified. And gentlemen, if you would be a disciple. And Jesus says this to the multitude. If you really want to follow me, you can't do your own thing. You can't pursue the desires of your heart. You must pursue Me. No person can inhibit your commitment. And no pursuit or no pleasure is to inhibit your commitment in seeking after Me. You must bear the cross. Thirdly, the other thing he points out is found in verse 33 of Luke. Jesus says in summary... So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who, do, who does not give up all his own possessions. You want to be a disciple of mine, Jesus said, 
Not only must you love me more than any other person, not only must you bear the cross and love me more than any other other of your own pursuits, but you must love me enough so that there's no other possessions, no person, no pleasure, and no possession is to keep me from my commitment to Him. And guys, all the time in our life, many, many times, we allow things to inhibit our commitment to Him. And Jesus said, we can't be a disciple unless we are committed to that degree. No person, no pleasure, and no possession. Some of us, we work like dogs for cars and clothing. Some of us work real hard for those social relationships because we enjoy that camaraderie with one another and with gals. Some of us make decisions to commit ourselves to the excellence of our education, all of which is noble and good as it fits in with the context of my commitment to Him. Some of you don't go to Bible study on Friday night because you're studying. Some of you don't go to Bible study on Friday night because you're out with your girl. Some of you don't go to Bible study on Friday night because you're working to pay for the car you have. And I want to ask you a question. Does your commitment on Friday night reflect your commitment to Him? You see, He's got to be first and foremost if I'm going to be a disciple of His. Big crowd following Him and He's saying, Hey, you don't understand. You think that it's easy to be My disciple. And I'm telling you, it'll cost you everything to be My disciple. Fellas, if you want to be what God wants you to be, you've got to give it all to Him. Or you cannot be His disciple. Mary Lou Retton spent six to eight hours every single day after school going through those floor exercises and working on the vault and working on the various exercises day after day after day. Do you know the average gymnast never ever has a social life? They don't have time because they're so committed to becoming the best they can be at what they've given themselves to. And fellas, that ought to shame us because rarely do we pay that kind of price for Him. You want to be a disciple, you need to be committed. Secondly, and it's caught up in the, the Word and we see in verse 27, not only does discipleship require commitment, but it also requires coaching. Notice what it says in verse 27 of chapter 14 in Luke. Whoever does not carry his own cross, denying himself, which we talked about. Now notice what it says, a little word. And in addition to that, Come after me cannot be my disciple. You know what the word come after me is? Literally means to follow me. To follow me. That's the positive side. Not only must I put off the stuff that would inhibit my love for him. Not only must I put off the pleasures and the pursuits of my life, but I've got to do things that would follow after him. I've got to follow him. I've got to look to him to learn the principles and the patterns of his life so I can do it like he did it. You see, a disciple not only must be committed to the degree where he'll put everything else away, but he'll focus his attention on following Jesus Christ. And following to learn the patterns and the principles of a Christ-like life, I want to suggest to you, requires coaching. Requires someone helping us to attain that end. See, you see, like the athlete, we just can't determine, hey, I'm going to be great at something. Mary Lou couldn't just go out and say, you know, I, I want to be the greatest female gymnast in the world. And I'm going to go out every day and I'm going to have my dad build me these parallel bars and I'm going to practice. 
And then I'm going to go out and I'm going to swing from a ring and I'm going to get a big mat and I'm going to roll around on it. And somehow by watching TV and practicing, I'm going to become the greatest woman gymnast in the world. No way, right? No way. Because there is instruction that is required. There is someone who is who must necessarily teach us the right way to do it. They must not only teach us, but they must demonstrate it to us. Because sometimes all the world's words in the world can't communicate the real way to do it. And thirdly, they must be able to evaluate us. To look at our performance and determine, hey, was that up to par or wasn't it? Fellas, I want to suggest to you that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, not only must you be committed, you need a coach. You need someone to help you know what you're supposed to do. At our baseball Bible study the other night, I had a young fellow, one of our students, say, you know, he said, this book is too big. Look at, look at all this stuff. How in the world can I learn it all? And second of all, how in the world can I understand it? There's so much to being a Christian. I don't know how. And I would suggest to you that none of us knew how. And many of us still don't know how. Therefore, we need a coach. I want you to look in the Scriptures, if you would. Turn over to John chapter 14, and I want to show you the two sources God has given us for coaching. There are two personal resources that God has provided the Christian for growing up into Christ-likeness. You want to follow after Jesus Christ? You want to be a disciple? I've got the commitment, but I need more than that. I need coaching. And God has given us two sources, two resources for coaching. Resource number one, we find in the book of John in chapter 16. Or chapter 14, I'm sorry. In chapter 14, John tells us that God Himself will send for us a coach. A supernatural coach. Someone who will instruct us and teach us in the ways of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, but the helper or the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. See what Jesus is saying? Say, I'm not leaving you alone. I ask you to follow me. But realizing that you don't have in and of yourself the ability to do that, nor the understanding, nor the comprehension, I am going to send a supernatural coach, as it were, to remind you of the things that I taught you, that you might be able to follow me. One of the resources God has given us for fellowship is the Holy Spirit. God Himself teaching us through His Word how we might be like Jesus Christ. Second of all, and the one I really want to, to spend our time on this morning, is God has given us other Christians as the other source of coaching. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said this, I exhort you therefore, to the Corinthians, be followers of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be followers or be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, do it like I do it. The word for follow means imitate. Use me as a model. Mimic me is the Greek word. Mimeo. If you want to be like Christ, guys, you've got to have somebody who you can follow as a model. 
You need somebody who can demonstrate to you the proper way to do it. Fellas, why do guys jump all over themselves to go to UNC? To go to Chapel Hill? To play basketball for North Carolina? Why do they go there, do you know? Because Chapel Hill's the prettiest place in the world to live? No way. Have you ever been to Chapel Hill? How about Indiana? The Hoosiers? Why do they go to Indiana, the University of Indiana, to play basketball? Because Indiana's pretty? Because that's the most desirable climate in the world? Because all the pretty girls live there? No way. Guys want to go to Indiana and the University of North Carolina to play basketball because they're the two finest coaches in all of the country there to teach them and to train them. So they go there because they know in Dean Smith and in Bobby Knight they'll find someone who can demonstrate for them the appropriate and proper way to play the game. And Michael Jordan and James Worthy, those gentlemen reflect the quality of their coaching. And I want to urge you gentlemen that just like the Corinthians were to imitate Paul, you need to find somebody you can imitate. A model to direct you as to how you ought to live in Christ. A coach who can demonstrate to you the proper way to do it. Secondly, not only must you have a coach who can demonstrate, but you have to have a coach who can instruct and teach. It's one thing to model it. It's one thing to stand up and show a person how to swing or how to throw or how to do a particular exercise, but it's another thing to actually teach him the principles involved. You know, I could watch a good pitcher all day long. I mean, literally. And yet you stand me up on the mound and I still couldn't mimic him the way I'd want to because I don't know all of the principles involved. So what do I need? I need instruction. I need teaching. Notice what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over there if you would. Probably do you well to read it and see it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing to his disciple, his son in the faith. He starts out in verse 1. He says, You therefore, my son, my disciple, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. And the things which you have heard from me, the things which I taught you, those things you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See what Paul's saying to Timothy. He said, I taught you some things. I as your disciple, I as your model, I as your coach taught you the appropriate way to live. And now I want you to find other men, faithful men, who you can teach also. Do you see that concept of teaching? If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we not only need commitment, we not only need a coach who can demonstrate the appropriate behavior, we need a coach who can instruct us and teach us the principles involved in that practice. We need to have someone who can teach us the right way to do it, God's way. Thirdly, not only do you must not only must you have some someone demonstrate to you the right way, not only must you have someone teach you the right way, actually by principle, but you must have someone who can evaluate you and give constructive advice. Notice what Paul did for the Corinthians. Turn to first Corinthians chapter five. I want you to see that this is biblical, gentlemen. It's not just a good analogy. It's not just a good thought that athletes are like Christians. It's not just a neat thing because Paul said, I labor as an athlete would labor and, and I work hard and I obey the rules. And although he drew analogies from the athletic uh, arena of his day, not only is athletics and Christianity alike 
by analogy, but it's biblical that we have a coach. It's biblical that we have someone demonstrate and teach us. And thirdly, it's biblical that we have someone evaluate us behavior. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Jump down to verse 6. Paul said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? I'm going to give you some advice. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now what's Paul doing? Paul's looking at the behavior of the Corinthians and he's evaluating them. He's saying, bad move. That's arrogant. That's not good. You should be mourning. He says in verse 6, he says, you're boasting. That's not good. What you should be doing is removing this problem from your midst. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 3. He talks about the Corinthians. And he said, I can't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as babes in Christ. Notice verse 3. For you are still fleshly. He's evaluating them. Gentlemen, we need someone who can evaluate our behavior as a Christian. You know, it's good for us that we have individuals who we have committed ourselves to who can come beside us and say, you know, Harry, your behavior falls short here, brother. And, and let me give you some c constructive advice as to how you can actually do it in a way that would please God. A coach who sees an athlete doing it the wrong way will tell them, hey, that's not right. It'll cost you if you keep doing it that way. And let me show you the right way to do it. Gentlemen, you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've got to be committed. Big crowd following Him. Big crowd doesn't understand the level of the commitment required. And I want to ask you, do you understand the level of the, of the required commitment that God is asking of you? Do you understand that He requires everything of you? Is there something in your life, a possession, a relationship, a pleasure, a desire that you are withholding because you won't give that to God to seek Him? He said, you can't be my disciple. Gentlemen, this is the foundation of discipleship until you understand that a disciple, and this is the only kind of discipleship the New Testament knows, a methetes, who binds himself as by contract to another to learn his teaching. Gentlemen, have you bound yourself to Jesus Christ to the degree where everything else is as if you hated it? It's necessary. And furthermore, have you found yourself a coach? Someone who you can look to to guide and direct you to evaluate your behavior, to demonstrate the right way to do it, and to instruct you into the principles of Christ-like living. Have you done that? Gentlemen, there is no excuse for us to wander around immature in Christ when there's so many other believers there are Bible study shepherds here in this valley which we, we talk about regularly. We talk about there, there are people in our local churches who are Christ-like and have great wisdom and we need to get with them. There are students here in our midst, some of your peers and friends who are mature in Christ and know things you don't know. Why don't you go to them and say, hey, would you coach me? Would you take the time for me to show me how I can be Christ-like like you are? You know, it says in Luke chapter 40 that when a disciple has been fully trained, he will what? He'll be like his teacher. You need to find somebody who you want to be like. 
and go to them and say to them, I need your help. And I'm committing myself to do what you would ask me to do. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and I want you to help me be that. True discipleship requires commitment and coaching. How many of you have a willingness today to make the kind of commitments necessary to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Just ask yourself that question in your heart. How many of you are willing? And then how many of you have someone who is instructing you, coaching you? When I was at Brown University, all I knew was the do's and don'ts of Christianity. I came out of a Christian home. I lived a moral life. I grew up in a home where if you, if you did wrong, you knew it was wrong and you knew there were consequences. So it was easy for me to understand that when God asked me to do something and I didn't do it, there were consequences. And I didn't want to go to hell and I asked Jesus to save me. And all my life I lived the I won't do this kind of mentality. I'm a Christian, so I don't drink. I'm a Christian, so I don't dance. I'm a Christian, so I don't go to movies. I'm a Christian, so I don't do all this stuff. And that was the extent of my Christianity. And I went to Brown. No mom and dad, no church, nothing. All by myself. And all I had was my athletics and my academics. And I didn't smoke and I didn't drink and I wasn't immoral and I didn't do all those things, but I really wasn't a disciple of Jesus Christ because I didn't have any commitment to Him. Not really. All I knew was the, the do nots. I didn't have the fellowship. I was the denying the self, but I wasn't pursuing. And it wasn't until an individual came to my door. I didn't go to him. An individual came to my door and knocked on my door one night and he came in and he was the offensive backfield coordinator at Brown, our football team. He asked me if I would like to grow up in Christ. He said, would you like to build a relationship with me whereby I will ensure by my commitment to you that you'll grow up and to be a man of God. And for two years he poured his life into me. And I didn't understand all I was telling you today. I didn't understand the importance of having a coach or the level of commitment necessary. But over the next two years of my life at Brown University, it forever and always changed my life. Because He taught me the right way to live. He taught me to read my Bible. He taught me how to study my Bible. He taught me how to pray. He taught me the right perspective on my relationship with my girlfriend back home. He taught me the right perspective on my future and, and ministry and service and career. My coach. I got a letter from him yesterday. I haven't, I haven't talked to him much in the last couple of years because I've been at Liberty and he's in Rhode Island. But it, I can't tell you how much it meant to me to know he still cares for me, still loves me, and still is vitally interested in what I'm doing. He's my coach. And at any time I know I can pick up a phone and call him and ask him for advice and questions regarding my spiritual life. Gentlemen, I want to challenge you to find somebody like that. And let them build their life into your life to be what God wants you to be. Let's bow our heads in prayer.